Well, we continue our study in women in the Bible this morning as we uh, are still in the book of Ruth. Last week we looked at Naomi. This week we're going to be looking at Ruth and her character and her actions. And when we talked about doing a series of, on women in the Bible, one of the things that, uh, that came up was, well, we need to talk some about the important, the, incru- the crucial roles uh, women have played in, in the scriptures, the consequential, maybe that's, maybe that's the right way to put it, roles that they've played in the scriptures. Sometimes maybe we, we give short shrift to, the, to some of those things. But if you look at it and you look at the role that women played uh, through the scriptures, uh, there are some figures that with, without whom we wouldn't have Jesus. Uh, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Mary, there's no Christ without them. And the same is true of Ruth. But uh, I think the other thing that we see in the scriptures is that what the Lord shows powerfully through, through these women is that it's not human accomplishment, at least the way we talk about human accomplishment, that the Lord cares most about. To, to have human accomplishment, often what you need is uh, things like uh, position and wealth and education, things that were often denied women throughout history, even today. But what makes these women extraordinary is their faithfulness, that they follow God and try to honor God even in small ways, and then God does something unbelievable with that faithfulness. And that's true, not just if you're a woman, but if you're a man, if you're anybody. It's not human accomplishment, but faithfulness, which matters to the Lord. That's the theme we see again in the book of Ruth. And with that in mind, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever feel consequential? Like your life really matters in the grand scheme of things? Or do you feel like the world this sweeps over you like a tsunami, that the forces around you just overwhelm you and just carry you along no matter what you do, no matter what impact you make, it just seems to be overrun by the things that are going on around you in, in the world. Do you feel small? Do you feel marginalized? Do you feel inconsequential? And I imagine some people, maybe even here in this room, after the events of this past week, are feeling inconsequential. I'm personally acquainted with the police chief in Baldwin through some work that I do when I knew him before he was chief there. And I, I, I emailed him this past week and said, hey, I want to let you know I'm praying for you. And there's a person of influence, a person of power, the police chief. And he writes back, he says, I need your prayers. Even sometimes in positions of power, we feel powerless. And let's Let's look at at Ruth and Naomi. If you know some of the story, Naomi went with her family, left Israel because of a famine, went to the the country of Moab, an adversarial country to to Israel. And there, uh, Naomi's husband dies. Her her children marry Moabite women, which really wasn't exactly the best thing for them to do according to law and custom, but they did it anyway. And then those sons die. And Naomi basically says, look, it's over. Um, It's time to give up. And it's in that context that Ruth comes back with Naomi to to Israel. And as we hear the story of this immigrant widow who has nothing more to her name but a self-pitying mother-in-law, I know I'm still bagging on Naomi a little bit. We'll talk about about positive things with Naomi in a little bit. But we're going to discover together as as we look at this that her seemingly inconsequential faith 
actually changes everything. So, Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that's Naomi, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? And here's the reference to what we talked about last week, the kinsman redeemer where a near relative would marry a widow and have child in the dead man's name to carry on the the line and therefore ensure the inheritance of the land. She's referring to that custom. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more so also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now as we've done previously in song We come to you now as we submit ourselves to your word. We pray that your spirit would be at work in us and show us the message that you have for us. Make make our, our, our minds understand it, our hearts open to it. That we may see a message of grace here, but also of exhortation. Father, use this word this morning to make us more like Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you look at lists of countries that are generous, America typically is always at the top of of the list of countries giving to charities and to nonprofits. In fact, if you you look at the list and compare the the percentages of GDP of of a country, the gross national product, domestic product, uh, we actually almost double the next, the number two on the list. Now, you have to, we have to mitigate that triumph by, by acknowledging the raw numbers. We only give 1.4% of our GDP to uh, charities and uh, nonprofits. Nonetheless, uh, I do know a lot of people who give, and they give very generously. <clears throat> uh, people here in St. Louis, uh, people who give to, tur- to tutoring in urban areas, uh, helping dig wells in Africa, supporting orphans in, uh, in Russia. I have one friend here in St. Louis, who uh, 
has adopted a number of children through the organization called Compassion International. Has anybody ever heard of Compassion International? Raise your hand. It's, it's okay to be interactive. You can raise your hand if you... So you've heard of Compassion. And he had a couple of kids with Compassion. There was one that he would uh, tell me about, a little boy in uh, Haiti. And he helped fund... Uh, the boys' meals, the daily meals, uh, education, some special projects. They exchanged letters back and forth. My friend even got to visit the little boy twice and, and see him as he began to, to grow and, and mature. It, it, was a, it was a very positive and meaningful uh, relationship. And my friend was, was helping someone in need. And then one day, my friend got a letter from Compassion, letting him know that the little boy had contracted an illness and had died. And it was devastating. It was heartbreaking. Here he had put time, money, effort, love, affection into this relationship. And what did it add up to? He felt like it added up to nothing. You know, the Lord tells us in the scripture, the world's a broken place and that he came into it to redeem it, to, to restore it, to, to, to fix the brokenness in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he calls on us to do similar things. You know, we don't die on the cross for people, but we, but we come alongside people and, and help them and try to relieve their suffering. But there are moments when we're doing that and we're working hard and suddenly we feel like this doesn't make any difference at all, does it? Nothing's changing. We have those moments. You have those moments. And perhaps some of you are having very profound moments like that this past week. The world isn't changing, is it? Maybe it's even getting worse. No matter what I do. No matter what we do. Look at the big picture. Sure, I help a kid in Haiti. But look at the economic situation in Haiti. It's, it's just a disaster. It's never going to get any better. We look at the social chaos of the inner city. Yeah, I helped tutor some kids there, but is it really going to make a difference? Now, I do work with people addicted to drugs out in the county. And maybe, you know, I help one kid, but does it change the moral bankruptcy we have going on out in West County, South County, wherever it is? Are we really making any difference? Now, maybe if I was a billionaire philanthropist or a U.S. senator, or maybe even a celebrity, but I'm not. I'm just a middle-class nobody. And we look at Naomi and Orpah and Ruth's situation. They must have felt like nobodies too. They're robbed of their husbands, and they lived in a culture where, for women, the male protection was almost everything. And they had to be feeling a sense of hopelessness and despair about their life. And Naomi just calls it outright. It's over. Girls, go back home. Start over. There's no hope for me, but you go back home and make a fresh start. But Ruth won't have it. She won't be parted from her mother-in-law. She swears this oath. And her faithfulness is moving. It's touching. Uh, and we use that, those words in many other settings, typically in weddings. But what difference does a young woman's devotion to her mother-in-law really make in the world? 
She's a woman in the ancient world where that was a disadvantage to her. She was going to be a foreigner in Israel. She was a peasant. She was a nobody. And here's what I want us to see this morning, and I think is the real mess, one of the real messages of, of Ruth, is that God is not calling Ruth, he's not calling you to make a difference in the world. He's calling on you to be faithful in word, in deed, in your life choices. Be faithful. And then let God make that consequential. So let's start with the last of those three. Life choices, life decisions. What are they? Well, they're the most dramatic ways in which we can live out faithfully. They're the pivot points in life. The, the things that send us in one direction or uh, another. Uh, where we go to college. Should I go to art school in New York City or should I go to engineering school in Rolla? Okay, that's a pivot point. Should I work for Monsanto in marketing or should I go, should I go work for Anheuser-Busch? Okay, very different career paths. Should I stay home and care for my mom or should I take a job halfway around the world? Maybe it's a second career. Uh, You've lost your business. You got fired from a job. Should Should I start a business or should I go work for somebody else? They're pivot points and they shape your life going forward from that moment on. And Ruth has some big life choices in front of her. She's gonna go with Naomi. What does that mean? She's gonna undo the tapestry of her life. That's what that means. She's gonna go to a different culture. She's gonna have to learn new customs. She's going, being, becoming a part of a new religion. She's probably gonna have to learn a new language. I often think about that when my grandparents came from Hungary and came through Ellis Island. They didn't speak a lick of English. They didn't have a, a penny to their name. What would motivate them to do something like that? What motivates Ruth to do this? Love. Love for her mother-in-law. And what more godly motivation could there be than love for another person? It's admirable. But again, we might step back and say, okay, yeah, admirable, but of what value is it really? Wouldn't it be easier for Ruth just to stay where she is, and get married to the boy she knew down the street growing up. She wouldn't have to learn a new language. She wouldn't have to learn a new custom. Wouldn't that be better for her? You know, she could be going to this place where likely she's going to be discriminated against, abused because she doesn't have male protection, experience prejudice because she's a Moabite. I mean, some might say, Ruth, you are throwing your life away. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? You're throwing your life away? Maybe not many of you, but I bet you some of you have had that said to you. What are you doing? You're wasting your life. Now, um, I graduated with a degree in metallurgical engineering, uh, material science, metals. And my best buddies in high school uh, also had higher degrees, and they went to some really good schools. I had some friends go to MIT. I had some friends go uh, to Stanford. I had a friend go to Wharton Business School. Some of them, you know, went on to grad school in Harvard. 
And uh, when we all graduated college, we were sharing our plans for life. What were we doing next? What was the next step? And I share with these guys, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. (laughs) Does that pay well? (laughs) Actually, I have to raise all my money. And my friends were concerned They were so concerned that they organized what they called an intervention. <laughs> and they sat me down to have a career counseling session with me. They're saying, Daryl, it's great. You love Jesus and all that, but you're taking your faith too far. Come on. You could do something important with your life. You know, because they wanted to do something important with their lives. They wanted the same for me. Some of them really did go on to do some pretty big things. I, I, I was tempted to tell you who this guy was and show, show you a picture because I love this guy. But since I'm not, I'm kind of pointing out, you know, he's, he wasn't really, he was kind of critiquing me here. I'm not sure I want to expose him that way. But he went on to be the CEO of a company called uh, Norabachi, which, which uh, makes LED lights. He was a managing partner uh, for Charter Ventures, a hedge fund that managed over $400 million dollars. Uh, earlier, he was a part, general partner at Alta Partners, which, uh, which is a head fu- uh, fund that managed over $500 million. He had operational positions at Motorola, Ameritech, uh, Peapod, and the one I think is really cool, for a short time, he worked for NASA <laughs> in robotics. I mean, cool stuff. And I went to work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. <laughs> You know, big things start with uh, these life choices. My buddies and I had different ambitions. So I made different life choices. I sought to be faithful to to God's call uh, on my life. And that faithfulness came from gratitude for what Christ had done for me. Human accomplishments are great in and of themselves. They're fine. They're wonderful. In fact, to a certain degree, God calls us to accomplish big things, but they're no hedge against death and judgment. And that's what Jesus had given me, certainty of mercy, of eternal life, and that death would not be the final word. So if he calls me to serve in some small place, I'm okay with that. Now, I don't know what my future is. I don't really know exactly where, what God's going to do with my service here or other places, wherever it might be, with whomever. But the Lord calls me to be faithful wherever I'm serving. And Ruth, she didn't have any large ambitions. She just wanted to love her mother-in-law well. And that entailed a life choice to leave home and family. And so she did it, and she let God worry about the outcome. And what outcomes there were. She goes to Israel. She meets Boaz. He's a a near relative, so he becomes a kinsman redeemer possibility. He decides he is interested in helping redeem the family line. He, He has an affection for Ruth, and he marries her. But he's not just any guy. He's a prominent man. He's a landowner. He's a man of influence. And he ensures not only Ruth's future, but Naomi's future. He restores the family line. It, it all works out, but there's more. 
She gives birth to Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the greatest king Israel ever knew. That is, until another descendant of Ruth is born, Jesus Christ. Ruth sought to be faithful with her life choices. God made them consequential. Again, these life decisions, that's the big picture. How do we inhabit that big picture, though? What's the character in which we live? Do we, do we live? Do we regret our life decisions? Do we live in bitterness, resignation, or do we live with joy in the, in the midst of those decisions? And that's part of faithfulness as well. The character of how we live is shown in our actions, how we carry ourselves. So again, we can ask the question, what difference can we make? What deeds can we do? What actions can we take that are gonna make a real difference in people's lives? Well, evidently, small actions attract attention. They certainly did with Naomi. Now, Naomi and Ruth come back to Israel during the barley harvest. And it was custom that when the reapers went through the fields and they collected the grain, uh, often, you know, they weren't perfectly efficient, so they would leave some behind. Sometimes they would drop some on the ground. And it was custom, in fact, it was law, leave that there so that the poor and sojourners can come and pick up what's left behind so that they have something to eat. And that's what Ruth does. She goes to the barley fields and she asks if she could follow the reapers and do some gleaning in, in, uh, in that way. And I want you to think about this situation. Here is a young woman who goes out into the fields, kind of you know, remote and, and, and distant with, with men who are probably pretty rough. Think of it like this. She takes a low-wage job in a sketchy part of town. And we ask ourselves, how can that change the world? What difference can that make? Well, it attracts the attention of the landowner, Boaz. Who's this young woman in the fields? Who is she? He asks his workers. They tell him the story. She hears about her tale. And then he goes to her and he tells her, listen, here's what I want you to do. I've taken notice of you. I want you to stay in my fields. Don't go to other places. Stay here uh, and you'll be under my protection. My men know that they, they better obey and they'll leave you alone. Now, why would he do that? In fact, Ruth says, well, why why are you showing me this kindness? And this is what he says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know, Boaz, he recognizes her life choices, but he, but he sees the ongoing care that Ruth has for Naomi, the hard work that she's doing. And the men note, take note, they say she only rested for a little bit. She came and she worked hard. And he praises that for what it is, godly. I see the character of God peeking through in you and I'm gonna take note of it and praise it. Boaz celebrates godly conduct even in those who are not of his people, not of his tribe. And and that's an important point because how do we do things? We typically, 
when we want to praise people, we look for people that are in our tribe, however we define uh, our tribe, and then we praise their success because in a way, it's a, it's a way of celebrating not so much the good deed, but our people, our tribe. How do we define our tribe? We define it lots of different ways. White, black, Republican, Democrat, Kirkwood, Webster. So now I'm, now I'm getting to meddling, aren't I? We look to our tribe for good things so we can say, see, aren't our people great? But that's not what God wants from us. He wants us to celebrate his character, his image, his likeness, wherever we see it peeking through, even if it's not in our tribe, not our people. To a certain degree, he wants us to praise it even in people who don't claim Christ. You see God's character peeking through in people who don't know Jesus? Point it out. Isn't that awesome? God's character is showing itself for its majesty, its greatness. Even in people who, who don't recognize God, God shows himself powerful and majestic in that. And that's what Boaz does. He sees in Ruth godly character displayed in her actions, and he praises it, even though she's not an Israelite. And this is, a, this is kind of a, a risky thing in a way because he's a, he's a man, uh, he's a businessman, he's a community leader, to a certain degree, he may be involved with politics, and he goes out of his way to praise a Moabite, someone from an adversarial country. Why? Because in her, he sees godly character. And in many ways, Boaz prefigures Christ. As the kinsman redeemer, he redeems the family line. Um, yes, but his actions show what the redeeming work of Christ accomplishes. The forgiveness of sins, yes, but also the breaking down of tribal and ethnic barriers. John Piper, in his commentary on Ruth, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, puts it well. He writes this, The redeeming work of Christ is free and undeserved. It is intended for every ethnic group on the planet. All ethnocentricity and racist impulses are crucified in Christ. That, too, is what the story of Ruth is about. Ruth is just seeking to be faithful to Naomi. And he lo- she loves her with her actions. And God makes them consequential. Now lastly, we need to talk about Ruth's words. And she has some pretty powerful words. We, we see this touching profession of commitment to Naomi in chapter one. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Mm. Mm, good words, powerful It's the best known passage from Ruth. In fact, the words are so powerful, a lot of times they overshadow its context. A lot of people are familiar with the words, but don't know where they come from. They use it in a wedding, not realizing these are not words speaking between two lovers. They're they're words spoken between a a, a young widow and her mother-in-law. It's a profession of commitment, but it's also a profession of faith. Your God shall be my God. that highlights for us the power of human relationship in conversion. 
Now, people are often converted to community, to connection first, and then they're converted to Christ. Now, I critiqued Naomi a good bit last week, kind of bagged on her a little bit, but there must have been something about Naomi's life, the way she thought about grace, the way she thought about uh, morality that, that, that intrigued Ruth so that when Naomi left, she wanted to go with Naomi. She wanted to be associated with uh, Naomi. And we see it expressed there in those, in those words. It's touching. But again, what difference does it really make? One daughter-in-law's affection for her mother-in-law, does it change the world. What value is there really in words? I'll tell you a story about a friend of mine and an interaction we had just recently, but let me tell you some backstory before we get to uh, that interaction. When I was 15 or 16, I met Anthony Thomas, the fine-looking young black man there. He was from the projects in Newark, and I had met him because of New Jersey's governor's school and uh, our mutual interest in the arts. Uh, we, were, we were both artists and we, we both loved comic books. Man, we, we, were, we were geeky about it, it was crazy. And if you want sometime, I'll show you the, the, the characters we created and the comic books we created. I still have a lot of that stuff. I loved him and he loved me. But as is the case, over time, you lose touch with people. Uh, he moved around a bit, I, so did I, and, and I lost touch with him. But then about six years ago, we got reacquainted with the help of Facebook. <laughs> and we keep up with each other pretty, pretty consistently. He stayed in the arts and in the media. He married an actress. And they together have 10 kids. I think very highly, I think any, anybody, any man who's a father of 10 kids in an intact family deserves our praise. I think very highly of him. He thinks very highly of me. Sometimes I think his opinion of me is higher than I deserve. No, we'll get to that in a moment. He has a home in Baltimore. And there were riots in Baltimore recently, so I gave him a call. Hey, are you okay? What's going on? And we, ch we chatted about what was happening in Baltimore and really in our country. And then this past week, with all that's been going on, he posted the video of the aftermath of the shooting of Philando uh, Castile. And I watched it. And it's disturbing. And so I, I posted under, the, uh, under his uh, posting on his Facebook page, a reaction, and we began to have this, this interaction. This is what I wrote. No words, no words. And he replied, you, my friend, are the salt of the earth. I truly think of you as a good man. I understand how this all can stun you to the point of speechlessness, but it is men like you that we need words from probably most of all. I wrote back, I feel completely unqualified and inadequate for the task, but I'll do my best. He replied, brother, who among us speaks adequate enough for all this? God, to be that articulate. Your best is all anyone should ever need, and I will never hold you to any higher. 
words have value. And using them as a part of being faithful, speaking a word of grace, of commitment, of love, speaking that into broken places, acknowledging there is real pain, there is real fear, there is injustice. And committing to another that you're not going to let them face that alone. It's powerful. And that's what Ruth spoke to Naomi. And this is what we can speak to our neighbors and our friends, whether they're white or black or blue. It's not about being partisan. It's about loving. You speak words like that in faith, the Lord is going to make them consequential. Again, we might ask ourselves the question, what what can I say? What can I do? What decisions can I make that are going to make a difference in in the world? And and if we ask ourselves this, this question, what difference can I really make? we're likely going to be left feeling hopeless and and helpless and and despairing because most of us really don't have positions that can enforce change in the world around us. So I'm relieved to tell you that's the wrong question. The question is not how can I make a difference, but the question is how can I be faithful in the context in which God has called me? Faithful to God's mercy shown in, to me in Christ. Faithful to the call to love my neighbor. You're not called to love the world. You're called to love the, the person next to you. What can you do there? And if this week everyone here did some of that in Kirkwood and De Pere and Glendale and Webster and Baldwin or wherever you're from, you make some life choices. You act Out of love, you speak a word of grace into a broken situation. It might be the beginning of something very consequential in this city, torn apart by racial hostility. But we're going to leave that to God. The question for us all is, are we willing to consider giving our faithfulness to God to follow his leading And let him use it as he sees fit. Will you do that this week? Maybe even this day. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we do ask that you would remind us again, not only of your grace, but your call to faithfulness, to live in that grace and to speak words of mercy and love and healing and redemption into broken places. And Lord, we don't need to look far to find them. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would give us wisdom. You would give us strength to follow where you lead. And Lord, we give it to you and let you decide how you want to use it. We pray, Lord, that our small acts of faithfulness will be used in a powerful way in your kingdom. Use us, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand with us as we respond.
Again, we want to let you know how glad we are that you uh, came to worship with us this morning. We do pray it was an encouraging time of being with God, but also with God's people. I want to remind you just of a couple things. First, if you have any prayer needs, so we have our, our prayer team and our Stevens ministers up here to pray with you, and I encourage you to take advantage of that if you, if you are being burdened by something. And also, uh, please join us for the vigil tonight at 7 o'clock out on the front lawn. Now, if you're in Christ, the Lord has a good word for you, and I pray now you would receive it in faith. May the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. Go in peace.